So hear now these words from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing what, that a great large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm going to say good afternoon. I've, I'm just, I put that in my head. Do not say good morning. Do not say good morning. So good afternoon. It's good to see you this afternoon. This lovely fall Madison day. I tell you, I'm going to miss your falls. That's for sure. Winters, maybe not so much, but definitely your falls. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you this, uh, these last almost 14 months. And uh, um, thank you for uh, partnering, allowing me the opportunity to partner with you uh, during this time. It's been, a, it's been a real joy and pleasure. Uh, this morning we are continuing um, this mini-sermon series that we started last week entitled Eating with God, and we're spending three weeks in the gospel according to the Apostle John and looking at three separate passages where there is a meal served, where people are eating, and we are looking at what exactly that tells us because it tells us something about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. And so last week we, we look and we saw the wedding at Canaan and saw that Jesus in his coming, uh, in his kingdom, there is great joy and reason for celebration for his life and his death and his resurrection and his promise to come again. This, this week we turn to John 6. Uh, probably a passage, if you've been around the church for a while, is probably quite familiar. But will you now pray with me one more time and ask that God might still teach us something that he would have us learn, even with a familiar passage like this. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we come into this place this afternoon 
stopping and pausing now to hear from you. At the end of the day, it is you, Jesus, that we need to hear from. We don't need to hear from the one speaking into the mic. So now, Jesus, would you send your spirit? Speak through me, around me, in spite of me, whatever it takes. Speak to us, we pray, for your servants are here listening. We pray this for your sake. Amen. You know, I think there are in many ways that this, this passage is actually a difficult passage to, to still have impact on us today. And not simply because if you're here this morning and you grew up around the church, you've heard this passage before, you're familiar with it, but perhaps even more so because of the society that we live in, this, our, our modern-day industrialized United States of America, we are very far removed from the context and experience that was necessary to the original audience to get the impact of what's happening here. You see, our relationship to food in general, and bread in particular, is vastly different from the relationship with food and bread that the average member of this crowd that Jesus was interacting with would have had. Consider the following. For most of us sitting here this morning, we are fortunate enough that food and the, 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 the eating of food is often actually more about our entertainment and our enjoyment and, our, and creativity than it is about survival. For the vast majority of the human race that has lived to date, the idea of this idea that we have, this concept of snack food, what is your favorite snack food, <laughs> would be completely mystifying and perplexing. And furthermore, the fact that one could be so particular in a world with so many possible options, they could be known as a foodie would be completely baffling. <laughs> when you and I are out of bread, we simply drive to the local Hy-Vee and we literally have dozens of options on the shelves. There's white bread, there's wheat bread, there's honey wheat bread, there's rye bread, there's multigrain bread. <laughs> the options are almost limitless. And as a type two di diabetic who loves to eat deli sandwiches anyway. It was a wonderful surprise this last week when I went into Target and found a new loaf of bread that was advertising itself as a low-calorie bread. And when I looked at the ingredients, sure enough, the carb-calorie count was half of what a normal loaf of bread, whole wheat loaf of bread, would be. Now, I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that the slices were about half the size of a regular piece of bread. But nevertheless, a whole new option became available to me this week. Bread. An extra option of bread. Or consider the consequences today. If you and I turn on the news tomorrow, turn on our computer, open up our whatever your news source is, and you read about a drought somewhere, or a major catastrophic flood in a region where our food is farmed and grown, what happens? What's the worst thing that happens to us living here? <laughs> the prices go up. <laughs> Our oranges no longer come from Florida, but now they're shipped from China. 
And finally, consider that when you and I go out to a nice restaurant, the first thing that they give us, just kind of to whet our appetite, <laughs> before the main entree is bread. In the first century Palestine, where this account happened, bread was rarely a side item. It was a staple. For most people, bread was your primary source of sustenance for the day, and you most likely didn't go to the market for it. Your household was likely making it, and probably almost every day, and often with several people in the household getting in on the process. And if there was a drought or a flood in the region, it wasn't a matter of simply importing wheat from another country. No, when there was a drought or a flood, people didn't eat. People literally starved. For the average person in this day, 70 to 90% of your wages went to buy bread. 70 to 90% of your wages went to buy the ingredients to make bread. For most of us here this morning, <laughs> we work, we make a living, we earn wages to enjoy a better life. <laughs> in this society, you worked and earned wages in order to eat, in order to live. Now, I point these differences out, <laughs> not to make anybody feel bad or guilty about enjoying good food. Far from it. If you happen to be here this morning and have a reputation of being a foodie, certainly not the one walking around in the back right now. I'm not shaming you at all, at least not that much. No, certainly being recipients and descendants of the industrial age has its benefits that we are right to enjoy and be grateful for. No, rather I bring them up to point out that there's a disconnect between what John's original audience would have heard and received and taken away from this passage and what you and I initially hear here living in the 21st century modern America. So with that in mind, we come to the story. Jesus has been teaching in the region of Galilee around the sea by the same name and outside of the main urban areas of Israel. This is rural Palestine of the first century. And crowds are continuing to grow as they're captivated by Jesus's teaching. And in verse 4, John gives a seemingly insignificant detail when he simply and quickly throws in, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. John says this, you see, because he wants his audience to immediately draw to mind the events of that great event of God's redemption of the Exodus that celebrated at the Passover. For it was during the Exodus when God's people found themselves in the wilderness and hungry. And at that time, God provided bread from heaven for them to eat and to sustain themselves along the journey. And once again here in this passage, we have people, crowds, in a wilderness of sorts, having, listening, having been listening to Jesus teach for some time now, and surely hungry and in need of food of some kind. And this is not lost on Jesus. And Jesus cares about their 
physical needs. And so Jesus, observing this, turns first to his disciple, Philip, who is actually from this region, and asks Philip, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, of all the disciples, Philip is kind of the, Philip is the detail guy. He's calculated. He's precise. And so when Jesus asked Philip where they might buy bread for all these people, Philip does the calculations in his head and recounts, Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little. He's already doing the calculations. Jesus wants this to be said and heard and observed, however, because he wants his disciples to understand there's no alternative here. He wants the crowds to realize there is no alternative here. There is genuine reason for concern because, as John tells us, Jesus knew what he was about to do. And at this point, Andrew speaks up and found a little boy among the crowd and brought him to Jesus and says, hey, there is this boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now pause just for a moment. Side little detour. There is a, this morning I would make the case, there's a, there's a little Philip and Andrew and all of us this morning. <laughs> we don't really have time to engage it, and it's not the main point of the passage, but we do well to observe this and then to think about ourselves, to regularly check ourselves both individually and as a church, as God's people on his and about his mission, to see if we are simply making decisions based on what the eye can see and the brain can calculate in a way that leaves no room nor need for faith for what God might be intending to do through us for his kingdom. Now, of course, certainly there's a big difference between acting in faith and acting cavalierly and foolishly. But, but it's always a profitable endeavor in the pursuit of gospel ministry to make sure we aren't making decisions solely based on what we can see and ensure that our guiding posture to decision-making in Christ's ministry is not simply, what are these for so many? But that's another sermon for another time. We move on. <laughs> Jesus next has everybody sit down. And then as the disciples start to hand out the bread and these fish, apparently they begin to multiply. But John's telling of the miracle is subtle. Not unlike how he told the story at the wedding of Canaan. He doesn't use the first century equivalent of all caps to write what is happening next. He simply says, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, Jesus told his disciples to gather the leftovers. <laughs> it's already happened. <laughs> There's no fanfare surrounding the miracle. This is not a magic show. When John recounts Jesus' miracles, he refers to them as signs. That's his language when Jesus acts in this way, supernaturally, by his sovereign power over creation. And the reason is the miracle is never simply about something extraordinary, extraordinary happening 
in order to prove that Jesus is some kind of superhero. (laughs) Jesus never simply performed a miracle for the show of it or for our entertainment. And so the disciples, in response to Jesus' instructions, end up filling 12 baskets. They started with, remember, five little loaves of bread, two fish. More than 10,000 people are fed if we're counting not just the 5,000 men, but certainly the women and children that would have been there as well. And they eat until they are full, John says. And after all of that, there's 12 baskets left over. 12 baskets. Remember the Exodus. 12 tribes of Israel. John wants us to have the Passover, to have Exodus on our mind. In other words, there was more than enough symbolically to feed abundantly all of God's people. An abundance. This wasn't a rationed event. This wasn't, let's just figure out how to make sure everyone gets just a bite. (laughs) They were full, and they had more than enough. Now, perhaps you're here this morning, maybe not yet a consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and the idea of miracles is just a bit much. (laughs) Perhaps you have resolved in your mind that you can handle Jesus as a good teacher and even learn from some of the things that he said. But when it comes comes to a miracle like this, it's, it's just too much to stomach. Let me just say that as far as miracles go and a skeptical posture towards accepting them as possible, I am with you. <laughs> this is not the expected experience of the average human being. Even human beings throughout all of biblical history. But accepting whether these actually happened is less about scientific laws and processes and more about whether these eyewitnesses were simply reliable or not. This particular miracle is the only miracle that's actually recorded in all four of the Gospels of the New Testament. And so think about that, with that, with that many number of people, combined with the fact that these Gospels were written within a generation of this actually happening, there have been plenty of opportunity in individuals around to refute it. At the end of the day, therefore, either these authors or making up some outlandish tales to get their audience to believe a lie, (laughs) or they're simply reporting what they saw, observed, and experienced themselves. Nevertheless, according to John, these people were just as astonished as we would have been had we been there. So much so that John says they try to right there on the spot make Jesus their king by force. And Jesus slips away, seeing right through their political motives and intentions. This is not the purpose for why he has come and why he has performed this particular sign. Now, if we were to read a little bit later, before we get to verse 35, the verse that was also read this morning, we see that the crowd continues to pursue Jesus. They go looking for him. and Eventually, they catch up to him. 
on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And there Jesus makes a claim that we see in verse 35 in the wake of this particular sign that was so astonishing to the original audience that shortly after this, many of these people, even his disciples, John tells us, actually leave him. (laughs) They're done. It's a claim that is still astonishing to us. Verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, just a few verses prior to this, Jesus exhorted the crowd in their misguided desires and intentions and motives and and said, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. My friends, far greater and far more astonishing than the impact of a miracle physically feeding over 10,000 people, Jesus makes an even more astonishing claim that if it is not true, is among the most narcissistic claims of hubris anyone has ever made. (laughs) And we would all be fools for sitting here this morning... (laughs) interacting with this text. I, keeping the context in perspective, Jesus says to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Jesus knows that all of us are hungering for something in this life that drives so much of what we do how we spend our money, how we spend our time, where we invest our energy. But Jesus claims that that hunger, that drive toward whatever we consider to be the ultimate goal that will bring us happiness, that will bring us satisfaction in this life, that will bring us contentment, if it's anything but him, Jesus says, (laughs) will only leave you more hungry in the end. I would make the case this morning that whoever you are this morning, we are all living by faith in something today. (laughs) All of us believe that there is something that will bring us the contentment we long for deep down in our hearts, whether we've actually formulated a formal creed about it or not. The crowds here in John 6 believed it was overthrowing the military occupying force of the Romans. But every religion, religion itself, is about addressing how to get that which we think will bring us fulfillment. But unlike religions, Jesus isn't pointing us to a path. He's not pointing us to another way to find life, to find ultimate satisfaction whether now or after death, he didn't leave behind a list of tenets to adhere to. Do these five things. Be a good person. Follow this teaching. Rather than pointing to something else, Jesus points to himself. And so even more important and consequential than doing business with the legitimacy of these accounts of supernatural acts and miracles 
I would offer this morning that intellectual integrity actually demands that you not simply be satisfied with the good things that Jesus might have said or done. I would make the case that intellectual integrity actually requires that you not simply accept Jesus as a good teacher, but rather do business directly with him on his terms, on the claims that he makes about himself. Because if they are not true, it would make no sense to somehow simply say he was a good teacher and be okay with just that. Jesus says, if you pursue anything else in this life but me to find ultimate satisfaction, everything else will not satisfy. Not only will it not satisfy, it will spoil. And the reason is that the Bible claims that you and I were actually built to long for more than simply the things that are temporal. Now, no, the Bible never says so many of these good things, these temporal things in life are bad. Actually, they are gifts of God. God made them. They're actually good, but they don't have the capacity in and of themselves to satisfy our greatest longings and therefore to long for them, to make them primal primacy in your life is actually selling yourself short from what and how you were designed to set your ultimate affection on. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Jesus would say, anything else in this life that you would make your ultimate aim, your ultimate desire, is actually selling your desires short. Come to me. Come to me. I am the bread of life. And furthermore, for those of us that have been following Jesus for a while, we must always keep in mind that Jesus isn't simply claiming that he can help us in this life. He's not simply saying that he would be a good addition to your life. He's making the claim that even more than you and I, more than our physical body needs bread, needs food, needs nourishment to live, you and I need him for spiritual health and life on a regular basis. And not simply to get into heaven. <laughs> now Jesus made the claim that you and I were built for our spiritual soul to feed on something that can give the type of life that you and I are actually meant to experience and that you and I spend so much time pursuing pseudo copies of the real thing, both for now and for all eternity. And Jesus says, I am it. I am what your soul was built to feast on. Friends, if you're here this morning, perhaps, maybe some kind of a dry spell, dry season, maybe in a spiritual rut of some sort maybe it's just possible that you have lost that you have forgotten your acute sense of appetite for the bread of life and have settled for cheap and unsatisfying substitutes it's just possible
And so I would invite you, feed once again, feed on the bread of life. So as we finish up, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we feed on the bread of life? Jesus offers himself in several ways to us, even today. First of all, we have to come to him in faith. Off the bat, we have to admit and recognize that outside of him, there is no life. There is no salvation. That from all the causes all in our lives that causes ourselves, our own beings, to disintegrate our sin. The ways we dehumanize both ourselves and others. The ways we have rejected God, our creator himself. All of it. And furthermore, that just as we receive the sacrament each week by breaking the bread and pouring the wine, we believe by faith... We take on by faith that Jesus himself, his own body, the living bread, was broken on our behalf. That we might be made whole once again. That his blood was poured, was shed, that our sins might be forgiven. That's how we begin this process of feasting on Jesus, believing that in faith. But then that faith, that belief continues to grow as we feed on him in other ways that he avails himself to us, again, through the sacrament that we'll enjoy in a few moments. Through these times of worship, even if it's late in the afternoon and not the regular time of schedule (laughs) that we're used to. These are times when our souls get to celebrate and acknowledge and feast on Jesus as the bread of life. We feast on him through times with other believers. When Jesus physically departed from his disciples, he sent his spirit, whose presence among us is so real, according to Jesus himself, that when we're together in fellowship with each other, sharing a meal together, praying together, spending time in a community group together, as his people, we are actually in the presence of Jesus and further receiving him. And so perhaps if you're here this morning, not yet, If you're part of Res Pres, but not yet part of a community group, I would encourage you, avail yourself of that further opportunity to feed on Christ, to be with other people who share his spirit. And when you're with in those in that presence, you share his presence and feed on him as well. And certainly he is available to us, his followers, through regular communion with him. Just as our physical bodies would quickly serve us notice (laughs) that we are hungry in a given day if we haven't eaten, (laughs) surely our souls need a regular feeding on Jesus. If he truly is the bread of life, surely our souls need a regular feeding on him through his word and through prayer. And one note before I close, none of these are are some kind of good work, (laughs) religious act that you do to get Jesus' attention. That's not the point. Brother, these are the gifts, these are the avenues that he himself has left behind that you and I, by faith, might know more and more fully what it is to feed on the one who claims to be the bread of life. You know, growing up in the South, I, I always considered myself a, a meat and three guy when it comes to eating. Some of the best soul food is in Memphis, Tennessee, where I grew up. Now, my wife is, and I mean this in the best sense of the word, is much more of a foodie than I am. (laughs) I'm definitely meat and potatoes. She's more of a foodie. And when we were in seminary, after being married for seven years or so, 
eight years, she introduces me to Tapas, a Tapas restaurant. She's like, no, 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 John, I'm going to introduce you to Tapas, Spanish food. Okay, we got to eat. Bring the menu. I order one or two things, and they bring the portions. And, of course, immediately they bring the portions, and I'm like, this is not going to be enough. <laughs> How disappointing is this? Immediately, I'm turned off by this, I, this concept of Tapa's restaurant. I'm starving for my meat and three, my soul food restaurant. Now, I've come a long way, just, just so you know, I've come a long way. I appreciate a Tapa's restaurant. I know now I'm more sophisticated. I know how to order when I go into a Tapa's restaurant. But that first, when, that, when they first brought that, that plate, that, the first couple of entrees, servings, I was severely disappointed. I didn't want to say anything to Jen. I could not understand how you could appreciate and love this so much. This is not going to be enough. <laughs> My friends, Jesus claims to be not what I experienced at that initial visit to a tapas restaurant. Claiming to be the bread of life. Jesus claims, I am more than enough. To feed on me will be to receive my abundant life. Come to me. Feed on me, for he or she who feeds on me will never go hunger. Who drinks from me will never be thirsty. Come to Jesus either for the first time or the thousandth time, but come to him as the bread of life this morning and know what it is to have spiritual life that is more than enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you have come that we might have life and have it abundantly and that by embracing you by faith receiving you in faith feasting on you seeing you as the ultimate satisfaction to our deepest hungers we do find and experience that abundant life help us to believe that this morning maybe some of us here are seeing that and, and perhaps you're you're you are opening our eyes and the hunger of our spiritual soul for the very first time. And so maybe we embrace you for the first time in faith this morning. Or perhaps we, 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 have, we have needed to be reminded. We have been distracted by pseudo-sources of food and sustenance. Remind us once again, Jesus, that you will make good on your promise to be the bread of life for us if we simply come to you in faith. We pray these things for your sake. Amen.